Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Eric Beckman. Dr. Beckman comes to us today as the Chief Scientific Officer for Cohera Medical Incorporated. Dr. Beckman is the principal inventor of the company's proprietary adhesive technology. Dr. Beckman has two important roles. He's the Chief Scientific Officer of Cohera Medical, and he also spends half of his days and nights as the Professor of Chemical Engineering at the University of Pittsburgh, where he also serves as the co-director of the Ascaro Sustainability Initiative. Uh, welcome, Dr. Beckman. It's a pleasure to have you on Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks, John. So, I know that the uh, one of the principal focus areas of Cohera is the development and the clinical implementation of this technology called tissue glue. Can you tell us a little bit about tissue glue, what it's intended to do, and uh, what the status of your uh, development is? Yeah, sure, John. Tissue glue is a, a urethane adhesive created mostly from lysine. And urethane adhesives, probably the, the one that people are most familiar with, is Gorilla Glue. Uh, urethane adhesives function as moisture cure glues, which means they, they use water to affect their cure. They're also very good at covalently bonding to naturally occurring surfaces. Again, in, in one's wood shop, the, the naturally occurring surface is wood. So what we've done is design a urethane adhesive that actually can be used inside the body. A typical industrial adhesive, obviously one wouldn't do that. So our adhesive is designed to adhere planar flaps of tissue strongly and then degrade in a matter of weeks and degrade to benign fragments. So, Dr. Beckman, uh, why does a surgeon have interest in a lysine-based glue for surgical procedures? I can tell you about that based on what our first indication will be. We're, we're proposing to use tissue glue initially to secure planar flaps of tissue after abdominoplasty. And typically in abdominoplasty, or, or tummy tuck as it's more commonly known, is once the procedure is done and the, the excess skin and, and fat are removed, and you secure the flaps down, you, you suture around the edges, but there's effectively a dead space uh, you know, in basically the center of the flap. Surgeons then insert drains to, to drain the fluid that naturally accumulates there, and the drain can stay in anywhere from a few days to a few weeks. Patients don't particularly like drains. The doctors don't particularly like drains because they, they lead to complications. And so if we could glue the, the tissue down in such a way that healing is accelerated, drains may not be needed and it just makes for happier patients and basically faster recovery from the procedure. So is this the principal use of this technology or does it have other applications as well? Well, this is our first indication. To go through the FDA, we, we need a, a primary indication that we're going to treat. But other proposed uses down the road is by making modifications to, to what is effectively a platform technology. We can glue hernia mesh down after hernia injury. We could potentially glue together small bones, which are very hard to put back together with pins and screws, and adhere fragments together before, for example, placement of pins and screws. So there's a number of, of applications we're looking at for products two and three, but our primary focus right now is on getting product one through the FDA uh, approval process. Dr. Beckman, I believe that the concept of tissue glue was a, an idea that was born a number of years ago in your academic research environment. So as a place to start this discussion, how long ago was tissue glue invented? Well, it's a good question. It was early in this decade, 
and it wasn't created on purpose. It was like a lot of things. It was an accident. Mike Buckley, who at the time was an oral and maxillofacial surgeon at Pitt, and I were working on a project to develop a guided tissue regeneration membrane, basically a membrane that was, was going to be implanted in the mouth to cover a bone defect, to allow the bone to regrow and keep soft tissue from growing in. So we were looking for a, a basically a resorbable membrane. And along the way, one of the intermediates to that was an early, early precursor to tissue glue. And, and Michael asked me if we could use this stuff you know, as a membrane. And I said, no, it really wouldn't work very well. It would stick to everything. And I think that's when, when the light bulb went off in Michael's head. He realized that, that he said this could be a glue. And I said, sure. I didn't think anything of it because I assumed that surgeons must have glues. You can go to Home Depot and buy 40 or 50 different kinds of adhesive right off the shelf. How surgeons not have a glue in this day and age? And Michael said, absolutely not. We have very little, if anything, that, that can be used safely inside the body and actually forms a strong bond. So that was the genesis of tissue glue right there at that moment. The guided to regeneration membrane project kind of ground to a halt and, and we put all our efforts into actually creating an adhesive. And then the, the technology was spun out. That was probably around 2003 we were looking at that. The technology was spun out as a company in 2006. It took a long time to get it to the point where it actually could be a company. So now there's a company, Cohera, that is uh, pursuing the uh, commercialization of this technology, which includes the, all the regulatory approvals. For our listening audience, can you just briefly overview from the time Cohera was formed until where you are and press a little bit forward to the, the milestone of having an approved product. What are the, what are the principal steps in uh, realizing that? Well, the, the key on the steps, John, is that everything has to go in parallel. And that's what makes this so hard is that it's not really a sequential process. Is that from the first day, you have to put in place a plan that allows you to proceed with product development. You have to put in place a manufacturing process for the glue itself. Who's going to do that, and are they FDA-approved, or do they follow a good manufacturing program? Who's going to manufacture your device to deliver the adhesive, and are they also FDA-approved? How are you going to sterilize the product? And so these things all have to be put in place in parallel at the same time, because once you submit something for approval, all of these procedures have to be locked in. You're not allowed to make any changes once you, you put in your package to the FDA. So... From the beginning, this was a parallel process, and what we're working towards is to put all of those things in place, including toxicity testing and, and degradability, to allow us to, to begin human clinical trials this year. And we've decided to start our clinical trials in Europe, not because that there's anything necessarily better about Europe, but because things move faster, that's all. And so the other thing is that what, what data we do acquire can be rolled into our, our U.S. trials as well. And so we're, we're hoping to start clinical trials this year in Germany. So we are looking at three or three and a half years from the time this company was formed with some emerging technology to the first opportunity for a clinical assessment. Is that correct? Yeah. And the biggest thing one has to, to think about is when something starts out in an academic lab, it's a technology. It, it's something that may lead to a nice paper, but it's, it's purely science and a technology. It's very far from a product. There are so many concerns that one has with a product that one could care less about when it's a, a, a laboratory technology. A great example is a product has to have a shelf life. I used to joke when we started this that 
we never worried about shelf life in the in the lab because we would make it in the morning and use it in the afternoon, and, and that's all the shelf life we needed. But but the glue is going to have to be able to sit on shelves for at least six months and ideally a year with no degradation in performance or properties. And there are a number of things one has to worry about with respect to, to making a technology a product that take time. Delivery is another one. Again, when it was a laboratory technology, delivery was by syringe. And that's just not going to fly as a dispenser in a real situation. And whereas I have experience in molecular design and chemistry, I had no experience in mechanical design of dispensers. And so we had to go out and find people that could consult and help us with that. So there are just a whole number of, of things that you just don't think about when it's a, an academic laboratory technology that suddenly and very quickly raise their ugly heads when you're creating a product. How big of a team does Cohera have to uh, move this technology forward? We're up to 15 now, and it's split between the laboratory types, the, the research group, and then there's the uh, clinical and regulatory group, which is absolutely critical. Part of my learning experience is, is that if you're going to get a product through the FDA, you have to have a very strong clinical and regulatory team, and, and Cohera does. Uh, it's led by Chad Coberly who we, we brought in from Zazi Medical. He also had experience at Stryker. And that's been just a critical piece. We have a very strong finance group because managing the money is important. And then the management team. And, and it's, just a, it's a, just a really good, well-balanced team overall. And it, it's 15 people that have to do all of this work. Now, you said a moment ago that uh, you're going to be getting clinical trials in Germany. What's your plan suggest in terms of when this technology would be available with FDA approval in this country? Is it uh, several more years? Or? Probably 2010 or 2011. And, and again, the key to remember is that we can take the data we generate in Germany and get what's called the CE mark, which is essentially approval for, for selling the product in Europe fairly quickly after we get the data. And having the CE mark will effectively allow us to market the product in Europe and in South America and in parts of Asia as well. In the U.S. system, we'll have to do an additional clinical trial. The European system only requires a, a safety trial. The U.S. wants both safety and efficacy, and the efficacy trial requires a large number of patients. So we'll have to do an additional trial in the U.S., and then we have to submit all of the results for our PMA approval. And it's the PMA approval. It's, it's waiting for the FDA to actually look over the documentation and make a decision that can take a long time. Those who have been taking longer and longer, it can be a year to 18 months while they simply examine the documentation. And that's a period of time when we'll need to generate revenue from outside of the U.S. sales. But it's, it's something that's faced by every device company in the United States these days is, is a lengthening of the process here in the U.S. so that most of the companies start in Europe. It, it just makes sense from a business perspective. Actually, I have to commend you and your colleagues because uh, from formation of a company to uh, FDA approval in, on the order of five years seems to be a relatively short time these days. Yeah, actually we read recently that the average time between formation and, and an event, meaning going public or being acquired, is, is now over six years and longer in, in the device industry. So. I think we're doing pretty well. And again, we're doing well while running pretty lean in terms of people. We're doing all this with 15, which to me is pretty remarkable. It's just hard to imagine that happening in my university life, getting that much on that fast with 15. But in a company, it's sort of mandatory. 
Uh, Dr. Beckman, you have had and continue to have experience on both the uh, corporate and the academic side of technology development. Can you share with us your observations about the differences in these two environments? So I think the biggest difference is the, the time factor. I've always said that in academia we have lots of time to do things, but we never have any money. We always seem to be broke. And so, you know, if the equipment breaks, well, you might not have any money to get it fixed. You have to do it yourself or wait until you can find the money to get it fixed. And if it adds another few months to the project, oh, well, that's life. Time is measured in, in years or semesters at best. And, and, you know, if a graduate student is going to take five years to do a PhD rather than four, that's just part of the game. The small company side, we never have enough time. We sometimes have enough money, but we never have enough time. And, and we can, you know, once time is expended, we can never get it back. And so we're always trying to shave time off of the schedule. The timeline is our, our great enemy in a small company because, you know, as each day goes by, you know, we're burning cash from the, from the money we've raised. And so time is the great enemy to a small company. And in, in academia, it's more like money is the great enemy for getting research done. And on each side, small company side, we never have enough time. And on the academic side, we never have enough money. And so that was the, the first big difference. The second big difference is more of an obvious one, I think, is that in academia, there really are no failures, per se, if you understand what's happening. If you set out on a research project to create X, and at the end of the day, that won't work, but you create Y, and Y is interesting, you can publish on it if it's good science. And the publication is the, the uh, desired outcome. On the other hand, if you're making a product and you're telling people you're going to create product X and you can't for some reason or other, Y may not cut it. And so it's, you really can't diverge from the path to product X. You can't accept that the product couldn't be created. You have to find a way to do it. And so, to me, those are the two big differences. It's, it's time is the great enemy, and, and you have to maintain focus on the prize regardless of the hurdles. You know, you come to hurdles, you can't divert. You just got to plow through them somehow or another. As you indicated earlier, the uh, tissue glue was uh, not where you started out in terms of your research. And, uh, of course, you just commented on that relative to product development. But I think you would agree that the... The, the, that type of an outcome where you start out for X in a, a research environment and you identify Y or Z or both uh, is a fairly common occurrence. I would think so. Most of my research career in academia, which goes back to 89, there's not a lot of projects I can identify where we set to do X and we hit and or nailed X exactly. I mean, almost everything ends up with, with small divergences, and that's what makes the academic research side thing. You're never sure where you're going to end up, and many times where you end up is a lot more interesting than where you propose to be at, at, the, at the start. It's just on the, the small company on the corporate side that many times, I mean, sometimes that works out, that you end up someplace much better, but for the most part, you, you have to end up where you said you were going to, to be successful. Because in many cases, where you propose to end up You've got a lot of market and other research to back up the fact that that's a good thing to do, whereas a divergence may, may not fly from a business perspective. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting game on both sides. So, so one of your interests is in training people, at least from the academic perspective. And you just shared with us the fact that the academic environment is completely different than the corporate environment. 
How do you instill in your students the, the fact that if they choose to go the corporate route when they graduate, that they're, it's a completely different world in which they've lived in for the last few years? That's a tough question, John. And I can speak primarily from the perspective of chemical engineering because that's the department I'm in. Chemical engineering has changed, at least as a field, dramatically since I was a, an undergraduate student. I was an undergraduate in the 70s, and you were trained primarily to go work for a large oil company or a large chemical company. And as a chemi, you were trained primarily to figure out how to make stuff. You were the process guy. These days, at least in the United States, the emphasis is much more on products and not processes. I mean, a lot of the, the big process plants are, are, are now sited outside of the U.S. to begin with. And in this country, more interested in putting together things that are made elsewhere to create interesting chemical products. And quite frankly, we don't teach that for the most part in the chemical engineering curriculum. I think that the first step, I mean, either to graduates or undergraduates, we just started at Pitt teaching a product development class only a couple of years ago, and it's directed exclusively at the, the undergraduates. I think the first step in doing what you suggest is to recognize that we have to bring product design much more fully into the chemical engineering curriculum and then find a way to teach it effectively. The second part, I guess, of the answer is we have to be able to convey more on how a business operates to our students. Our students are incredibly well-versed in science. They understand how to construct and manage a research project. But none of them really have any significant experience in industry when they come to us, I'd say for the most part. Maybe through internships, maybe through course, we have to figure a way to, to convey to them how actual businesses operate, where product development is concerned, so that they can step right in. I think companies these days assume that we don't do any of this and they're going to have to do it on the fly and that anyone they bring in is entirely naive where product development and business is concerned and they're going to have to do all the teaching, it would make our students more valuable, of course, if, if we could give them some of that while they're still students. I agree with your observation, but I would also suggest that the co-op program that the university runs helps somewhat in exposure to the, the corporate side. Of the that's, that's true, John, and I, I think it probably varies by the co-op experience. I bet you some of the co-op experiences are, are fabulous. If, if the students have positions of some responsibility and they're right in the middle of the product development process, they're probably really interesting. Probably some of them you know, fall short on that if, if the students are doing just fairly traditional process work out in industry. So I, I would imagine that some of the co-op positions actually do exactly what I said. Now, Dr. Beckman, uh, you've uh, shared with us the fact that you're pursuing this primary focus at Cohera on developing tissue glue and bringing it to uh, commercial reality and clinical reality. I presume that you're developing other products to feed the, the product development pipeline for this emerging company. Is that the case? Yeah, we have a, a product two and a product three following along behind tissue glue. Product two is for uh, fixation of hernia mesh, and product three is a, a bone glue for small bones. It's really, there's, there's, again, it's all about parallel paths. A small company is much more valuable if it has a platform rather than a single product. And, and so it's, it's very important to us that we show that our urethane adhesive technology is a platform. And through basically what I would call tweaking, molecular tweaking, we can apply this platform to many different clinical situations. That's number one. Number two, though, while you have a platform technology, you, you have to maintain a sort of laser-like focus on getting that first product through the approval process. 
because that's the only way you're going to generate revenue. And revenue is the sign of a healthy small company. Someone that wants to buy you or if you want to do an IPO, these things are based on being able to demonstrate revenue. And for, for biomedical device companies, maybe seven, eight, nine years ago, it was enough to have a cool technology. You were moving through approval. These days, if you want to be considered a viable small device company, you have to have revenue. So we have to do both at the same time show that we have a platform and that we have follow-on products while maintaining this laser-like focus on getting tissue glue through the approval process. When you get to your milestone, you should write a book about your experience. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would enjoy and make it a very learningful experience to you to share your track and your experiences. Yeah, we'll call it culture shock for fun and profit. <laughs> Dr. Beckman, you shared with us that the Coherent team consists of 15 people, which is, by your own admission is a relatively small uh, but very select cadre of uh, specialists. What does a, a small company look for in terms of recruiting and filling these key positions? Well, it's, it's interesting, John. That's one of the things I had to learn when I went to Cohera is how to recruit for a small company. I'd only been recruiting for academia for the previous 20 years. And quite frankly, in academia, we recruit primarily based on, on a CV. We look for people's scientific accomplishments, you know, in terms of productivity of publications, presentations, and we look at how well their science is regarded by the community. When you're recruiting for a small company, what you're looking for, as much as anything else, is passion, you need people that are willing to throw themselves on their swords for the company. The people that you bring in, because the number is so small, are going to have to live and breathe the, the enterprise. They're going to have to make this part of their life's mission. So you look for passion. The other thing you look for is chemistry, and, and not the kind of chemistry that goes into tissue glue, but team chemistry. These people are going to be sort of living together, as it were, for an extended period of time. And, and you need to find people that can fit into a team concept because it's really about the team. It's not about individuals. And so what's interesting is you're looking for sort of these personality traits almost more so than a, a stellar CV. I mean, there are people that might have the greatest CV in the world and, and might be brilliant scientists but just can't cope with the sort of frenetic environment that's present in a small company. And that's what's different. And you have to learn to sort of read between the lines of a CV. And, and the personal interview becomes very important. You have to tease out whether this person really can commit themselves to a small company. What we found, for example, is that there are people that have had successful careers in large companies that don't make the transition very well. Because in a large company, you find people get compartmentalized. Their job descriptions are fairly rigid. And the notion of someone moving across their job boundaries is not maybe a natural thing to them. Whereas in a small company, everybody has to be willing to pitch in on everything at some point. So it's just a different way of looking at potential employees. But it's something I knew nothing about until I came to Cohera. Interesting observations. Dr. Beckman, you shared with us this interesting evolution. I know some of the team members you've recruited have come from other cities to join the Cohera team here. Is Pittsburgh continuing to grow in terms of its ability to support small business in general and biotech in particular? Well, I, I think the region is learning how to do this. You know, we're still small relative to a, uh, a biotech boom town like, like a Boston or, or a San Diego or perhaps a Minneapolis. But Pittsburgh has some interesting things in its favor and, and some things it, it needs to work on. In its favor is that it's just a great place to live. 
So attracting people from out of town to Pittsburgh is not as hard as one might think. Uh, on the negative side, most people mention the fact that it doesn't have a lot of new business creation, and so that might make people leery about coming here. But on the good side is that it is, it's just a really nice, inexpensive place to live, and that's good, and it's, it's got a lot to offer. When it comes to looking at people, Pittsburgh generates a lot of scientific talent every year, both through Pitt and Carnegie Mellon, but sometimes there's what I would call a lack of balance in, in the types of people that are created. For example, if we're looking for someone with experience in cell biology, it's wonderful. It's like nirvana recruiting here in Pittsburgh because there's loads of people that come through the, the UPMC, the School of Medicine system, with, with great experience there. If we were looking for a, a software guru, um, we've got a, an enormous wealth of talent that's created every year at Carnegie Mellon. And so in those two areas, recruitment is a joy. In some other areas, there's, there really are shortages of, of talent on the, say, mechanical design side for dispensers or devices. On the polymer chemistry side, we just create very few people each year that one can recruit from. So there are gaps in, in our ability to service small companies where technical talent is concerned, but then we, we go out of town for that. Another great advantage is, is Pittsburgh's low rents, for the most part. Is we found some just superb space over on the north side, not far from the baseball stadium, which was incredibly modestly priced, and then, then we, uh, we fitted it out. And because there's not been this tremendous population pressure in Pittsburgh, you can get really good space for not that much money, and that's a, that's a great advantage. So I'd say there, there are advantages and disadvantages. There are local environment, I mean, economic development organizations, most prominently the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse and Innovation Works, and both of those provide significant help to small companies, and that's a very good thing. So again, it's, I think the region is slowly learning how to do this. It's just that we started out behind the big boys, the Bostons, the San Diegos, and the Minneapolis, so we have to play catch-up in some respects. The other thing we're still missing is that large anchor company, the one that starts out as the, the single behemoth in the region and then itself spins out companies because its own employees go out on their own and, and create new businesses using packages that they've received by being early employees at the behemoth. We don't have that, and, and I think the region's been searching for such a thing or trying to grow such a thing for a long time, so we still don't have that. But in other areas, we're, we're moving along nicely. Incidentally, speaking of the Pittsburgh Life Sciences Greenhouse, I noticed that they recently recognized you for being the Western Pennsylvania Engineer of the Year, which was a recognition by the Engineering Society of Western Pennsylvania, so congratulations. Thanks, John. Yeah, that was that was something I, I received from ESWP a year or two ago, and it was it was a nice honor to be recognized by my fellow nerds. Uh, Dr. Beckman, we appreciate you joining us on Regenerative Medicine today, sharing your experiences both from a technology perspective as well as a corporate development perspective and product development as well. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors these podcasts. Remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics to cover. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And also remind our listeners that while we welcome suggestions, we're not able to diagnose problems via the Internet. Again, thank you, Dr. Beckman, for joining us, and I look forward to joining our listeners in two weeks with another interesting podcast. Thank you. Thank you.